Support for Check the Pantry comes from the Grog Shop Wine Club, which each month provides members with two or three bottles of unique wines that are currently unavailable in the Homer market. These wines are curated by Patrick Driscoll, who's worked at Michelin Star Restaurants in New York and is the only Level 3 sommelier in Alaska. More information at 235-5101. Additional support for this season of Check the Pantry comes from Bay Realty. Bay Realty has been listing and selling homes, lots, acreage, multifamily, commercial properties, and property management in the southern Kenai Peninsula since 1974. Learn more and view current listings at bayrealtyalaska.com or by calling 235-6183. Probably 60% of you are going to hear me say today's show is about chicken liver and want to turn off the radio. This show is for the other 40%. And for the ones who hate liver, but stick around anyway. From KBBI in Homer, Alaska, my name's Jeff Lockwood, and it's time to check the pantry. Consumption in the U.S. increased dramatically after World War II, thanks in part to Margaret Mead, who served for a time during the war as the executive secretary of the Committee on Food Habits. Even before Pearl Harbor, as the U.S. became more and more deeply entangled in the conflicts erupting around the world, government officials were becoming concerned about two things. Malnutrition, which was a major issue for young rural men entering the military, and the limited range of foods eaten by large swaths of the country, potentially a very serious problem if rationing became necessary. And thanks to the general belief at the time that problems could be collectively solved, the Natural Research Council founded the Committee on Food Habits, tasked with not only studying nutrition and what foods could improve the diets of Americans, but crucially, coming to an understanding of how to change the way people actually ate. That's why the committee was staffed not only by nutritionists and doctors, but sociologists and anthropologists. Rationing began shortly after Pearl Harbor. Most of the preferred cuts of meat were diverted to the army, and many of the less desired cuts went to our British and Soviet allies. There were plenty of livers and kidneys and brains to go around, though, since their more perishable nature made them more difficult to ship. So, under the guidance of the Committee on Food Habits, the government started publishing recipes for steak and kidney pie and giving flyers for butchers to hand out, suggesting using liver to fill out your meatloaf. It worked. The combination of limited supply and an organized effort to help people understand how to cook essentially forced people to try something they believed they hated. And many discovered that they liked it. By the early 50s, liver and kidney made regular appearances on the middle-class dinner table. Liver seems to have fallen off again in mainstream food, though. It doesn't show up on American menus very often outside of badly cooked diner versions of liver and onions. It never makes the cover of the glossy food rags, and at the grocery store it's sold cheaply, in pint containers or as the main component of what's now considered old man food like Braunschweiger and liverwurst. 
Of course, many high-dollar restaurants feature its luxury version, foie gras, but the whole point of foie gras is that it is so fatty and so rich that it really doesn't taste like liver anymore. But I'm always happy when I find out someone loves liver. It means they're going to be easy to cook for. Well, first you make a roux. I happen to have a pound of chicken livers. Beautiful, local, delicious looking chicken livers from Blood, Sweat and Food Farms that I purchased through the Alaska Food Hub. And I'm very excited because with a pound of chicken livers, you can do a lot. And I'm gonna split my pound into two half pounds. And I'm gonna make two dishes that each rely in their own way on chicken livers. First thing that I'm making, which I'm starting right now, is gonna be the Louisiana Classic Dirty Rice. For some reason, when it gets to be sort of late summer and early fall, well, not for some reason, because it's, start, it's starting to become, at least, especially in Alaska, you know, it's starting to just tip over into, into gumbo weather, which is, you know, generally when your nights start cooling down and you start thinking a little bit about fall. I mean, it doesn't really happen in Louisiana until the end of September or early October, but you know, it's Alaska, so mid-August sounds about right. I'm not making gumbo today, but I am making something that actually is really good practice because it's almost the same process. Uh, it just isn't quite as large scale. So dirty rice at its heart really is just a, a dark roux gravy with chicken livers mixed with rice. Um, sometimes it's called rice dressing. Some people leave out the chicken livers. Most recipes will also include either some ground beef or some ground pork. Sometimes one, sometimes the other, sometimes both. But to be an actually a really good dirty rice, it really needs to have chicken livers in it. It's just not right without it. It's not really dirty if it doesn't have the chicken livers. It just kind of looks dirty, but it's not like, it doesn't have the, the proper amount of funk. Because chicken livers are actually, they do a lot for sauces, actually. They're, because they're, they're a fantastic emulsifier. Liver in general is an amazing emulsifier, which we'll get to when we make our second dish, which is pretty much an emulsion of chicken livers with other stuff. It gives a really nice body to a sauce. Even after it's been cooked, it does a really good job of, of thickening sauces. And in fact, there are some really classic sort of elegant sauces that... Basically, you take them off the heat at the very end and pound in a chicken liver into the sauce and then you'll strain it all out to get any fibrous bits out and the, the barely cooked liver is in fact what binds the sauce. This one's not quite that refined. Um, this one is, we're basically gonna make a roux, add our trinity, simmer down, uh, and then add uh, our liver and then simmer it all together for a little bit with some chicken stock just to get a nice sort of thick sauce. And uh, I'm not using ground beef and I'm not using ground pork today. I don't have any. And honestly, to me, they're just kind of, they're not essential to this, this whole deal. The chicken livers are the one indispensable uh, tool here. So I've got some lard heating up. Again, you can use oil. And we're just going to make what now should be a little bit familiar to maybe some of y'all. We're just going to make a dark roux and we're going to do it over high heat. This is a good way to practice because in this, unlike, you know, in the Black Hot episode, 
not long ago, I made a cubion, which is an excellent practice for making dark roux because the roux is a very, very tiny part of the, the whole process. Well, in dirty rice, the roux is considerably more important, but it's not everything the way that a gumbo is, but it, it, needs, to be, it needs to be pretty dark. So you're, there is a little bit of pressure on you to make a good, solid, proper dark chocolate roux here. So unlike the cubion where you could get away with it being a little lighter, with this, you really need to make sure you're getting it as dark as you can because a lot of the, the depth of flavor in this particular dish comes from the interplay of the dark roux and the chicken livers and that's like that's the bedrock on which the whole thing sits so standard process for me high heat is definitely worthwhile learning how to make a roux on high heat because it makes it a lot easier and a lot quicker to do stuff like this but you know if you're just starting out there's nothing wrong with spending the time to do it or if you're really just starting out, there's nothing wrong with ordering yourself a jar of dark roux because that's the way a lot of people do it now. I feel like you should only really be allowed to, to, to use jarred roux if you can at least demonstrate that you can make a semi-competent roux. You know, like almost like <laughs> they should give you a test or something. And then after that, you're allowed to, to use the jarred stuff for convenience. But I realize that that's really silly and, and shouldn't be the case. That's just gatekeeping on my part. There shouldn't be gatekeeping in food. There should only be happiness that people are cooking delicious food. So I've got my onions, I've got my celery, I've got my bell pepper all chopped here, and this is going to be pretty standard beginning of a lot of Cajun dishes. Once my roux gets to my point of being colored the way that I want it to be, I'm going to add the onions, turn off the heat, let it sit for a few minutes, let the onions sweat, let them cook down a little and sweeten and turn translucent. And we'll add the other two, we'll add some garlic, and we will then add the chicken livers and really begin this process in earnest. So we're getting here pretty close. We're out to peanut butter now. Edging past, edging through peanut butter. Oh yeah. Oh, there's milk chocolate. Turn off my heat. Add my onions. And this is a quarter cup of lard and a quarter cup of flour, incidentally. Add a little salt. My heat is currently off. I'm gonna leave it off basically until the sizzling kind of chills out because that'll indicate to me that a lot of the initial shot of heat is gone and I'm not gonna have to worry anymore about burning my, my roux. All right, we have settled down. Fire up the burner again. And I need a little bit of garlic. Occasionally you will see dirty rice called rice dressing. They're, bit, they're pretty much the same thing if there's a if there's an actual difference, I don't know what it is. I think it's mostly some places call it dirty rice and some places call it rice dressing. I actually grew up calling it rice dressing, but outside of Louisiana, I think dirty rice is a little more common. People know what that is a little better. A little garlic here. Onions are starting to look nice and sweated. So let's add the bell peppers and the celery. That's about half an onion, half a bell pepper and two not very large stalks of celery. Sprinkle a little more salt, little pinch of salt in. So the garlic is ready to go. In goes the garlic. I'm gonna pull out my little bowl of beautiful chicken livers here. It's about, like I said, about a half a pound. And I'm just gonna give them a rough chop here. I don't wanna use them whole. Just wanna give them a quick little chop so that they cook quickly and so that as I stir in the chicken stock, 
at the end here, they, they'll start to incorporate into the sauce a little bit. It's not going to be like a full, full-on pounded fine binder, but it will do a little bit to sort of melt into the sauce and give it a bit of a, a bit of a silkiness that it otherwise would not have. So I'm just going over the chicken livers pretty well here, chopping them, you know, relatively fine. A little bit of Tabasco, and let's go traditional here and just use some Worcestershire. A little extra Worcestershire helps give it that funky edge. Drop my livers into here. And I'm just trying to incorporate them a little bit into the paste. I'm gonna turn my heat down a little because I don't want them to overcook. Mashing them into the Trinity because I don't really want them to have a ton of structure. I don't, I don't want there to really be identifiable chunks of liver in here. All right, that's pretty good. They're just starting to kind of barely turn gray. That lovely, so appealing gray that liver has turned. Grab my chicken stock and just start to incorporate it. So what we're looking for here is a substantial but somewhat thin. We don't want it to be a thick paste. We want it to be kind of a gravy is what we're looking for. This is essentially sort of a slightly refined version of rice and gravy. Also one of my favorites. And you can see as you're making it, like the livers do really start to kind of melt into the sauce and they give it a really unusual texture. You know, so the combination of the, the, the livers and the, the roux give it a really interesting and sort of almost like unctuous mouthfeel um, that's a little bit different than a sauce that's just thickened with a roux. So the livers are not here just for flavor. They are, they are an important textural component of this dish. Yeah, oh, so lovely. And this part doesn't take very long. You know, we're not looking to simmer this for a long time. We're basically just cooking it until it's the consistency that we want and until the livers are cooked through and until we've incorporated them into the sauce to the degree that we would like. So I'm gonna add last little handful of stuff here obviously a little pinch of cayenne you guys are probably kind of used to hearing about this particular bunch of sauces or of uh, spices good shot of paprika a little dried thyme i'm not going to add a bay leaf here because i'm not simmering this for a long time so this won't take long to cook so just a little shot of thyme and oh yeah what a lovely sauce oh it's beautiful it's beautiful so that is right about half of a quart of chicken stock so a pint roughly of chicken stock and i'm just kind of mashing the the livers and the well all the mixture kind of on the side of the pot a little bit so right now i mean it is a chunky almost like kind of spaghetti sauce consistency, which is good because the next step with this is mixing this with hot rice. So all you gotta do at this point to have dirty rice is cook up a pot of rice and then mix in this sauce and you're there. I mean, it's just, that it really takes what, 15, 20 minutes from the time you start to the time that you're done to, to have this ready. Holiday classic. I'm gonna add a little bit more chicken stock, maybe another half a cup, just to loosen things up a little bit. Because as it sits, it'll it'll thicken a little more too. And then once it goes in with the rice, the rice starch will absorb 
some of the uh, some of the liquid too. If it's a little thin, you can just add more rice. It's a little too thick, obviously, just add a little more liquid. The other nice thing about this is now at this point, like I can cool this off and have it just sitting in the in the fridge, so that if I want to make rice later, but I want to make this earlier in the day, all I got to do is cook the rice fresh and uh, add this to it, and you're there. Let's see. Give it a little more, a little pepper, a little black pepper. Give it a little white pepper. I bet it's gonna take a pinch more salt, and then I'm gonna give it a taste. Make sure we're, make sure we're in the ballpark here. Mm. Oh, that's nice. That's really nice. Need a little pinch more salt. It's very good. The liver, the liver gives it like almost a brightness that goes really well with sort of the darkness of the roux. Because liver, liver has a lot of funk, but it's kind of a high note funk, you know. It's not, it's not the real deep, earthy note. It's a little bit metallic. Oh, it's super good. Yeah, but it's not something like you wouldn't, you don't taste it and immediately think liver. You just taste it and you go, wow, that's really interesting. So this is a good dish also for people who swear that they don't like liver, especially if you, if you add the, uh, the ground beef and the, or the ground pork to it, because they, they both, they make it a little bit milder and a little bit sweeter and they sort of reduce the liver top notes, become a little less prominent. And they also don't necessarily think that they're biting into liver. <laughs> and the liver is one of those deals where I think a lot of people have had bad liver with that really nasty, chalky kind of texture where it's got that also really weird off-putting flavor. It's been overcooked or whatever. But uh, something like this is something that even people that, that won't eat like livers straight frequently will taste this and be like, wow, that's really delicious. Again, it's super easy to make, really cheap, and <laughs> there's a lot of this too. So it's an awesome side dish for, you know, if you're doing like fried or grilled fish, something like that. Um, it's terrific with that. It's, it's just really versatile, really delicious. Um, I love this stuff and uh, we really should make more of it. Dirty Rice, classic of the chicken liver repertoire. Okay, the next thing we're gonna do with our, the other half of our chicken livers is to make a lovely chicken liver pate slash mousse. Most of the time in the US you see it called pate, but a lot of times in more French places they'll call it mousse. And pate, I mean, it literally it just translates to paste, but it's, it has a lot broader meaning in francophone countries than typically we think of it. Like when we think of pate, we pretty much always think of chicken liver pate slash mousse. But pate can really be, it's a huge possibility of things it could be, including a lot of like what we would call, typically in the US would get called a terrine or often called a pate on French menus. But don't get too hung up on vocabulary. So we're just gonna make a nice pate, chicken liver mousse, and the important thing to remember about this is that actually what it is is an emulsion. And in a lot of ways, it's really kind of a very, very thick sauce. So I've got a half a pound of chicken livers here, and I also have a half a pound of really good butter. You know, you wanna, if you're gonna make this, I think it's, it, it makes a lot more sense for a number of reasons to use the more expensive butter, um, because the more expensive butter has a higher fat content, so it's a little softer at room temperature. It's a nicer texture for something like this that you do wanna serve, you know, either slightly chilled or at room temperature, kind of ideally. And it has, it has a richer flavor. It's fattier and it just, it just tastes a little bit better. I got a little bit of butter and I'm sweating some garlic and a shallot in that, and that'll be the 
sort of base for what we've got going on here. Uh, this, there's a lot of different ways of making this. Um, mostly the way that I make it nowadays is pretty much identical to how Jacques Pepin does it. You know, there's always some changes and it's been so long since I learned how to do it that it could be very completely different and I still think of it as being based on Jacques Pepin's version. But uh, basically I'm just gonna sweat these, the, these shallots and these, this garlic together. And then I'm gonna add a little bit of wine. In this case, I'm gonna add a, uh, some inexpensive Riesling. So, and it's not super sweet Riesling. There's a lot of acid in it. There's a little bit of sweetness, which goes really nice in this. Um, and then I'm gonna basically steam or poach the, the livers in this mixture. Now the livers themselves, I added about uh, an eighth of a teaspoon or so of sodium nitrite to them and a little bit of salt couple grams of salt and the sodium nitrate will when it cooks it'll give it a really nice pink color which is really really pretty I have made it a lot without it without the nitrite and uh, it, it's also plenty delicious it's just gray it doesn't have the really gorgeous pink color so I just added a splash of Riesling and now I'm just dropping in my chicken livers my half pound of chicken livers and they'll should stay nice and pink I gave them about probably an hour and a half in the nitrite. Cover that. And I'm just gonna let that simmer for eh, somewhere around five minutes, maybe a little bit longer, just until they're barely cooked. We don't wanna overcook the livers because overcooked liver is where the weird textures come from. Um, sodium nitrite, by the way, we've mentioned it occasionally a few times, um, usually in the context of cured sausages or smoked sausages. Nitrite and nitrate are different things. Nitrite is the thing that actually preserves meat. Nitrates are used in long cured sausages. Over time, they convert to nitrite. Nitrites themselves uh, do their work pretty rapidly. And in things that you're cooking, you always want to use nitrite because nitrates in, their, in that form, when subjected to heat, can form compounds called nitrosamines, which are carcinogenic in sufficient quantities. And that's, that's the thing that people freak out about when they, you know, talk about nitrites and nitrates, typically confusing the two. Um, nitrites don't convert to nitrosamines in the presence of heat. And over time, like in a salami or something that you, that started out with, with nitrate, by the time it actually gets finished, all or the vast majority of the nitrite or the nitrate has uh, converted to nitrite. So you don't have to worry about nitrosamines in there either, but typically those kind of things aren't even heated. There used to be, it used to be fairly common to use nitrate in bacon production, but since the link to between heat and nitrate and nitrosamines was discovered, it has been illegal to use nitrate in bacon. And nitrite is, you know, in the quantities in which a reasonable person would consume it, innocuous. In fact, pound for pound, celery is considerably higher in nitrite than most cured sausages, which is why every smoked sausage or quote-unquote uncured hot dog or whatever always contains generous quantities of celery salt as an, or celery powder as an ingredient because that contains large amounts of nitrites and you cannot make smoked sausage 
safely without them. <laughs> because that's how you get botulism. All right, let's see what we're looking here. Oh yeah, they're a beautiful pink color. So they're still a little raw on the inside. Now, unfortunately, I had big plans when I was conceiving this show. I had big plans of busting out one of my favorite kitchen tools, which is the Tammy, also known as a drum sieve. It's, it's made appearances on the show before. It looks a bit like a springform pan, but it's got a sieve for a middle. And what you can do with a Tammy is you can put solids onto the top of it and scrape it down and scrape it through. So you get a very, very fine texture and it leaves behind any like fibrous chunks typically get left behind and only the very, it sort of pulverizes and makes this beautiful paste. It is the best tool for making uh, pate, chicken liver pate slash mousse because you get a really, really beautiful texture. Unfortunately, <laughs> uh, my screen for my Tammy, I just discovered has gone missing. I don't know where it is. So sadly, uh, I'm not going to get the full fineness that I really desire with this uh, pate. It's gonna be a little chunkier than I want, but you know, gosh, what are you gonna do? You know, you, you just can't have everything. But what I'm gonna do here, if I was making a larger quantity, I would probably do it in the food processor. Um, but since this is a fairly small quantity and since I don't have my Tammy, is another consideration here. I'm gonna go ahead and do this. I'm gonna mash this uh, liver up in the mortar and pestle because I can get a little bit finer texture. It'll take a little while. It'll take a little longer than I would really like it to, but uh, you know, what are you gonna do? You just have to react to the world as it comes to you. And some days you just can't find your Tammy screen. And I don't know where it could possibly be. Not, I can't even remember the last time I used it. It's not, it's one of those kitchen tools that you don't use very often, but when you use it, it's like the thing that you most need in the world at that point. I'm just gonna pound the livers down first and get them into a little bit of a paste there. And I think in the original recipe, I think Jacques uses uh, brandy. And brandy is a perfectly acceptable substitute for this wine. I just happen to have some Riesling sitting around, which is always a good problem to have. It's looking good. So first I'm just gonna pound the livers down and then I'll start working my the liquid into this. So I can make sure that I get, I don't get too much liquid. And I also have, sitting in my mixer, my half pound of high quality, high fat butter that I will be using. And that's just been sitting and coming up to room temperature because shortly as we get close here, I'm gonna start the mixer and get it whipping. Cause I wanna get my, I wanna have a nice fluffy texture on my butter. Okay, my liver is now making a pretty nice paste here. So I'm gonna go ahead and start working. So I'm gonna strain out the shallot and strain out the, the garlic. I'm gonna add these into my, into my liver mixture and sort of pulverize them down a little too. Make sure they're nicely incorporated. This is just a little bit too small an amount to really do in, in the food processor. You know, if you don't have enough in there, it doesn't work very well. Twice as much a pound of this, and I'd probably be, be good to go in there. So I'm just gonna, 
get this as smooth as I can here in the mortar and pestle. I want to take a little extra time with it because I don't have the Tammy. And I have conical strainers, but conical strainers for solids are really, they don't work very well. You just can't really generate enough force to, to get them through. You know, for liquids, they're fantastic. You know, particularly like a real fine mesh chinois or something like that is great for, for things that are mostly liquid, but for solids, the Tammy is really the only way to go because you can generate a lot of pressure with them. Okay, now I'm gonna gradually start incorporating this little bit of wine. And this is gonna form kind of the base of my emulsion. Once we start dropping this into the butter, our emulsion will really start taking off. Let's smooth it out a little more. There are some recipes that will add cream, um, but personally, I'm not the hugest fan of cream for things like this. It's really good for texture, like it will help smooth out the texture a little bit for sure. And it'll make it a little bit kind of looser. But at the same time, I, I've, and I've said it before, I kind of feel like cream a lot of times will sort of dull the flavor. So I am basically, basically a straight butter fella. It's starting to loosen up now. Last little bit of wine here. Getting close. I'm going to go ahead and add a little white pepper and a little black pepper. I'm not going to add any salt right now. I'm going to see what the salt situation is at the end. There's already some salt in the liver. And I actually can't remember if this is this particular brand of butter is salted or not. But I'm going to proceed. And I already threw the wrapper away. So. I'm going to proceed as if it is. So I can always add salt at the end, but I can't ever take it out. God, it's just not... Without a Tammy, it just never is going to get to the totally fine, silky texture that you want. Now, the, if you do have a really, like, one of the beefy blenders, um, those will actually do it pretty well, too. Although, the best way of doing it is to blast it through one of those and then run it through a Tammy again. But the, the mega blenders will actually get you pretty close to the texture that you want. But you know, not everything has to be completely smooth and refined. Although I do like it that way. But I like a chunky pate too. I like a little bit of rustic texture. I can live with that. Make sure we're pretty well liquefied here. Take your time at this point. It's the other nice thing about the Tammy, it speeds this up. <laughs> All right, I think we're there. I think that'll be just Jim Dandy. So I'm gonna plug in and crank up my mixer here. All right, my butter is now nicely whipped. It's nice and soft, it's fluffy. Generated a little volume here. So now, don't add your liver. You, want, you don't want it to be too hot. You don't want it to be too hot. We don't want to melt the butter because we are, this is an emulsion too, like sausage. It's a very fatty emulsion. You know, if you made it just a little bit more liquid, you'd almost have a salad dressing. And in fact, I have made really delicious salad dressing out of uh, canned foie gras before. Slightly warm, it's very delicious, actually. And remember, some people, some people call, some people will call this stuff foie gras. It's not foie gras. This is, this is just regular foie. This is just livers. Foie gras is a whole different animal. They're related, but they're not the same. All right, so I'm just going to add a little bit at a time here. 
and start slowly incorporating it. Scraping down the sides of the bowl periodically, just like making a cake. The biggest difference in a lot of these recipes will be the ratio of uh, liver to butter. And I am decidedly on the roughly one-to-one -one train. You can even add more butter. This is definitely one of those dishes too that even people that are confirmed liver haters will frequently eat with great relish. Because again, there's so much butter that the liver taste is relatively mild. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Lovely. Okay, this is the last of it. So now, give the bowl a scrape. And now it's kind of a pale, sort of pinkish color. It's very pretty. Give it a good whip. Give it a nice texture. Gets it a little frothier. Smooths it out a little bit more, but again, man, not as much, not as much as with the Tammy. But hey, that's how she goes. Let me go ahead and taste this, see how we're doing. Mmm. Oh man, that is good. Oh, it's super buttery. It is so buttery. So buttery and delicious, and, and it's the texture's gorgeous, and it's got that, that hint of like livery brightness that, uh, oh, oh, that's good. I'm adding a little more pepper. I don't think it needs any more salt at this point. I'm perfectly happy with the, the salt content. And the final thing that I'm gonna add here is a little mixture of some parsley and some green onions and a little fresh thyme. Be kind of generous with these too. I like the way these all blend together with chicken liver mousse. Oh yeah, beaut. Beauty, and now it's done. <laughs> you know, another kind of ridiculously fancy seeming thing that actually takes no time at all and is ridiculously simple and, and quick and fast. I mean, you could serve this right now and it'd be completely fine. It doesn't need to sit at all. It doesn't need to chill. In fact, in fact, this stuff is much better at room temperature than it is uh, chilled because the texture is a lot better. Although, you know, if you're not serving it for a couple days, you do need to chill it. But then ideally you'll let it warm up to room temperature before you actually put it out because uh, it deserves it. The flavor is a lot better. The texture is a lot smoother. You know, when the butter is kind of soft. Oh, it's so good. So good. Now, if you want to get really traditional about it, you can clarify a little bit of butter and use that when you pack it into bowls or pack it into jars or whatever you're packing it into. You can top it with a little melted clarified butter to give it a bit of a seal, which I often do. Maybe I'll do it today, maybe I won't, I don't know. So right now I'm just packing it into a couple of ramekins. You can also, if especially if you're serving it that day, you can just plop, plop it right on the board. Or you know, you can make a nice little canal out of it. However fancy you're feeling. It's one of my favorites because, especially in the US, it's coated as like kind of elegant but it's really easy to make. And it's, it's one of those things where you can really scale it up. You know, you can leave the livers pretty chunky and have it like a real rustic texture, or you could go all the way, get the Tammy, use the top quality butter, maybe add a little extra brandy and uh, have something that really feels special. You know, it's a, it's a simple, it's a really simple dish. You can use chicken livers, you can use duck livers, you can use goose livers, you can use pork liver, you can, you know, beef liver might be kind of gross because it's pretty strong, but any of the livers, turkey liver, 
any lever will work. But see, now I have the problem of what am I gonna serve this with? So I'm gonna spend a little bit of time making just a little quick and easy sort of charcuterie snack board. And the first thing that we're gonna do is make some really simple, really quick, really easy rye rolls, because I love rye bread. And this one, rye bread can be challenging to make and we'll discuss that, but uh, this one's really easy. All right, well, we need a vehicle for the, uh, the pate, the chicken liver mousse. You know, it can be anything. It can be crackers, it can be whatever kinds of bread. But given the kind of show that this is, we're gonna make something for this. And in this case, we're gonna make some rye bread. These are, in fact, the recipe is called Rye Bites um, from a really fantastic book. If you're at all interested in baking rye bread, uh, this book is excellent. It's called The Rye Baker by a guy called Stanley Ginsberg. And he actually, he got into rye bread himself and realized that there wasn't a lot of resources in English for making rye bread. Almost all of them were in German or the various Eastern European languages. So he spent some time collecting recipes and techniques from Central and Eastern Europe and some other places too, which are kind of the homes of rye bread, and then wrote what is kind of the definitive book in English about rye bread. And this is, this is a real great find for me because I'd, I've always loved rye bread, you know, even though I never had a ton of experience with it because it's not the most common American bread, you know, like we typically only have a handful of common rye breads, you know, that typically are like the, the deli style rye or the Jewish rye that are not quite the same as like the really long fermented um, European ryes which are a lot denser and a lot richer in flavor and typically use a lot more rye flour. And so I'd made some rye breads based on, you know, whatever you can find in kind of other baking books. And I'd never been very successful. The breads were never very good. And in fact, they very often had sort of a gummy texture at the end, which was really weird. It really threw me off. And I made a few and I was like, well, I guess I just don't know how to make rye bread, which it turns out was true. Um, I didn't know how to make rye bread because rye bread has a pretty interesting characteristic and, the, and it's endemic to the rye flour itself. There are certain enzymes in rye flour that will turn rye bread gummy after baking. These enzymes actually develop during the ferment and then they, they last through the bake and then after it's baked they start to work and they'll turn the, they'll turn the, the, the crust They'll give it an actual like a gummy texture and it happens after it's been cooked. So you might cook, you might cut the rye bread open shortly after it's cooked and it's okay. But then a couple hours later when it's cooled down, all of a sudden it'll have this weird sticky texture. And I would, I would get this in my rye breads and I, I was like, I didn't know how, I didn't know what it was. I had no idea why it was happening. It doesn't happen in wheat flour. So, you know, I, I didn't have any understanding of what was going on. So it turns out that there are these enzymes in rye bread that go to work and that, and that do this. And maybe when we do an actual show on rye bread, we'll get really in-depth on the science of what exactly is going on. But the short version is, basically, unless you're making a rye bread that is a very 
small amount of rye flour. So usually like 20%, maybe up to 30%. But the more rye flour that you in incorporate in the recipe, the more likely you are to have this issue. So the way around it, there's two ways around it, actually. One is to use a sourdough, an acidic leaven, because the acidity in the sourdough actually counteracts the development of this enzyme during the fermentation process. So it makes it so that it doesn't, it doesn't really develop that much. So the, the sourdough and the acid essentially counteracts it and makes it not an issue. You know, it's still always gonna have a very dense texture. Rye doesn't have nearly the gluten content that wheat flour does. So you don't get, you don't get a rise. It's always gonna be kind of a denser bread anyway when you're using a lot of flour anyway. Now the other way, and sourdough is the main way that, it, that it's done. Um, almost all the, the really top-notch European recipes and Eastern European recipes for rye bread, almost all of them contain sourdough. The ones that don't, however, because there are a few that don't, and this is one of the ones that does not. And the reason is, is that I, <laughs> I haven't been baking much lately. So I had let my rye sourdough starter die off, which I know I'm a bad person, but whatever. That's just how it is sometimes. I let my rye sourdough starter die off, so I don't have one right now. And I don't have many days, three or four days in which to get one going. So I'm not gonna do that either. So I'm gonna make the other way, the other method of counteracting this enzyme, which is to have a very, very short ferment. In this case, these rye bites, which are a German, they're basically a little roll. They have a very short ferment. So we add a little sugar to the dough in order to kick off the yeast and they ferment for really just about like a half an hour. So from start to finish, this whole, this whole bread really doesn't take a whole lot more than an hour. We're gonna give it, it'll take, you know, eight to 10 minutes or so to knead. As soon as we make the dough, as soon as we finish developing the dough, we're gonna divide it into uh, the little roll size, the little balls. And then it only ferments for like a half an hour and then we'll throw it right into the oven, cook it for like 20 minutes and they'll be done. So this is a super quick dough, um, a super quick bread. It's not gonna have like the real super dense sort of rye flavor, but this is a 66% rye dough, which is a lot, you know? And, and ordinarily, like if we tried to give it even a regular bread dough rise for, you know, about an hour and a half for a first rise and then an hour and a half for a second rise, those enzymes in the rye flour would develop and we'd get gummy bread. But because it's all happening very quickly, it, those enzymes don't have time to fully uh, develop into the thing that's gonna screw up the texture of our bread. So it's very exciting. Uh, it's, it's maybe one of the shortest rye recipes you'll ever make. This one is, uh, so this is 400 grams of rye flour. I'm using dark rye. The recipe actually calls for medium, but I've never been able to find medium rye flour in Alaska, and I'm not gonna special order it. Or maybe I will one day, but. <laughs> uh, and so 400 grams of rye flour and 200 grams of regular bread flour, 375 grams of water, six grams of salt, five grams of yeast, and five grams of sugar. This is a 62% hydration dough, which is fairly light, fairly low on the hydration scale. And turn that on in the mixer with the dough hook. It's gonna take probably eight to 10 minutes to fully develop here at kind of a medium, medium, low speed. So I'll be back once it's done. 
stiff now. Definitely not as gluten-y as a, as a straight wheat dough, but it is pretty stiff. Got a little stretch to it, a little strength. A little rye flour down for dusting. And we gotta divide it now, because again, unusual. You know, most doughs we'd give a bulk ferment. This dough doesn't get one. So this is gonna happen pretty quick from this point. So I'm supposed to cut it. It says I'll get 24 pieces out of this. Although I'm always a little dubious about that. Golf ball size rolls. They're not supposed to be very big. So I will try to keep them fairly small here. I've never managed to get the, <laughs> the yield I'm supposed to get out of recipes. Unless I go through the trouble of actually like weighing them. In a professional situation, I would, but this is home. I'm not gonna weigh stuff here. So that's pretty good. That's probably 20 anyway, close enough. So I'm supposed to roll them up, which I do. Do two at a time, one in each hand. And they're small like this, very simple. And then it wants me to have some extra flour, some extra rye flour, because I'm gonna flatten these out by pressing them down in the extra rye flour and just make them into a nice little flat oval. It's kind of interesting. I never made this particular recipe before, but if it works out, I could see it as being very, very handy because uh, these kind of super quick breads that are, that are still interesting are not super common. You know, a lot of quick breads aren't that exciting. Rye flour is just, I love rye. It's got that kind of spiciness real robust flavor. A lot of us think that think of rye and we think of caraway and a lot of people I think think that that is the flavor of rye, but it's not actually. I mean, it goes really well, obviously, which is why rye and caraway are so common together. But caraway is not a necessary component of the deal. Although, you know, if you felt like adding some caraway into here, I wouldn't stop you. I won't tell, but it's not necessary. Almost done. Two more, 18 out of here. So technically I should be getting a few more, but I'm not. If I measured, I'm sure I would, but I didn't measure. I'm gonna set these aside now in a semi-warm place in my room. Cover them with a sheet of plastic wrap and I will be back in like, how long do they say this usually is? Yeah, half an hour and then we'll be ready to throw these in the oven. So I'm gonna preheat the oven, starting in about 15 minutes to 430 degrees or thereabouts. I don't have an oven that's that precise. So we'll be back in a half hour to throw these in the oven. Okay, it's about a half hour later. And definitely got a little bit of a rise on these guys. Not a ton, obviously, you know, we're not doubling in size or anything, but uh, they should get a nice spring once I throw them in the oven here. So I got about a 425, 430 degree oven and just dropping them in, slap that door closed and bake until light golden brown, 18 to 22 minutes. So I'm gonna let that roll and uh, we'll see where we're at. All right, we're getting pretty close here. Smells pretty enchanting, and I am very excited. Quick look! Oh, look at that! They're very pretty. I think we are pretty close here. I don't really need to let it go for the last 39 seconds on the timer. 
I think we can go ahead and pull these guys out. Look at that, just a little bit puffy. Yeah, they did get a little bit of a rise. They are quite lovely. Oh, look at them. Look at that. Cute little things. So, oh man, this is kind of exciting actually. Easy, quick rye bread. Like, <laughs> anybody that bakes rye bread knows that those are not things that go together very well. This is usually quite a process. I'm pretty excited though. This is actually kind of reinvigorated my love of making rye bread. So I'm definitely gonna have to get a starter going again so that I can make some proper stuff that's nice and acidic and delightful. But these little rolls, once they cool down, although I know you're not supposed to, but I'm still gonna eat one with a little butter and a little salt. Cause you know, you're supposed to let your bread cool. And I know this. I know it's better. I know all the scientific reasons for it, but really the biggest pleasure in baking your own bread is pulling it out of the oven when it's still like steaming, almost too hot to eat and slathering it with too much butter and uh, grabbing a little nice salt, dropping it on there and eating it when it's too hot. Mmm, that's actually super good. <laughs> it's really good. It's very rye forward, um, but it doesn't have the the real sourness and acidity that a that a properly made rye exhibits. It's kind of light. It's it's really it's actually really good. <laughs> wow, what a great what a great little rye bread. Yeah, that's terrific, and it's going to be really delicious on a charcuterie board with uh, with this beautiful local chicken liver pate. But we do need a few other things to go along with the charcuterie board, so. I'm going to devote my brain cells to figuring out a few other little snacks to round out this little snack board. But first I'm going to eat the other half of this rye roll that's slathered in butter and salt. So I'll be back. Well just not a proper charcuterie board unless you got some kind of pickle or some kind of relish or some kind of something that uh, gives you a little acidity, a little brightness, a little freshness to go along with all the rich, fatty, meaty deliciousness. So I'm going to go ahead and make a quick little relish with some stuff from the garden because it's summer. And these little relishes should reflect what's available. And what's available right now, I am very thinly slicing a leek. It's a very small leek. My leeks still have probably another month or so to go before they're properly sized. But occasionally, you know, I like to, to throw in a, a little baby leek into something just to remind myself that I'm growing them. So that's a little small leek that I'm just dropping into a bowl and I got some garlic scapes because I've still got a few of those left. They don't have much longer before they're going to be too big and sort of tough to, to eat. So I better get to using them. I'm a big fan of these quick little relishes, kind of like salsas a little bit. Sometimes I call them little salads, especially in the middle of summer when you got a bunch of stuff happening and it all tastes pretty good together, but you're also 
kind of going nuts and you're busy and it's hard to really devote a whole lot of time to <laughs> thinking too hard about what you're going to make. So if you can just grab some things that go well together, throw them in a bowl with a little salt. And then what we'll do is cook some vinegar with a little bit of sugar, not very much. I don't want this to be sweet, but I do want a little bit of a little sweetness to kind of counteract some of the bitterness and some of the acidity of some of these ingredients, especially the main, the main ingredient of this relish today is going to be some cucumbers that I have that I don't know if they were, they got too much sunlight or not enough, but they're kind of yellow and not very nice looking. You know, maybe there was, uh, didn't fertilize the plants they were on well enough while they were growing or something. Anyway, I got a handful of these and they're, they're kind of misshapen and they're not super attractive. And oftentimes these are tend to be a little bitter too. Which yeah, it's not like it's not like a great cucumber. You know, it's not really one that I want to eat on its own. And it's not one I really want to because you only really want to pickle the really good ones. It's kind of a dull flavor. It's a little bitter. It's a little washed out. You know, it's not, it's just not really what I'm looking for in a cucumber, but it does have, you know, it's got a little bit of that sort of melony thing going on. It's not inedible. It's just not a great example of a cucumber. And I'm going to blend, blend its flavor with these other flavors and uh, make it a nice hole that will go beautifully on a board with my little rye bites and my chicken liver pate and some mustard. And I'll probably throw a little farmer's cheese on it and maybe some nuts. Maybe I'll spice some nuts or roast some nuts or do something with some nuts because nuts are good. You know, probably some crackers too. Maybe some other stuff. Who knows? Who knows what's going to go on this thing? But it will be... I always get really disappointed because some places, some places, you know, you, you order a charcuterie board and it winds up just being a bunch of like salami, you know, and some other like meat but they don't really give you a lot of snacks and other kind of stuff to cleanse your palate from all this super heavy really rich and fatty meat in a charcuterie board i really think that the the accompaniments are as important as the as the actual meats itself themselves because it's the accompaniments that make it possible to sit there and keep eating it you know and not just get kind of put off and tired of here's some fatty meat with a bunch of salt Here's a bunch more fatty meat with a bunch of salt. Here's a bunch more fatty meat with a bunch of salt. Oh, this fatty meat has a little bit of smoke on it. You know, it just gets to be, it's a little one dimensional sometimes. So I just cut some dill and now I've grabbed some mint, which will be nice in here. One of my favorite things about summer is my massive mint patch. Cause mint is one of those things that goes in all sorts of things. It's very shockingly useful stuff. And I'm chopping up a pepper, in this case one of my Aji Ricos, Peruvian peppers. Not very hot, still green. And now I'm just gonna cut this cucumber, fairly small dice, so that it'll sit nicely on top of my little rye bread full with pate on it, or a cracker. Sometimes, you know, not all the produce is the best. A little watery, but they will be delicious in conjunction with all this other stuff. You know what I do have that I'm going to drop in here? And these are also local, so I feel, feel like it fits with the local theme of the salad. I got a handful of these Hakuria turnips. 
sweet Japanese turnips, which are so delicious. Cut that into halves. And just give it a little more texture and a little bit of that lovely turnipy flavor. I'm just going to give these a little bit of salt here. Just toss them. And the final trick, I'm not going to add any pepper or anything else. I just want sort of the pure vegetable and herb goodness. So I'm just going to do maybe a cup of rice vinegar. I don't want this to be super wet or anything. And maybe a quarter cup of probably two tablespoons of brown sugar. Just going to bring this to a boil and then uh, dump it right onto the to the mixture here. Dissolve, get all this sugar dissolved. And it'll just give it a little bit of sweetness and a little bit of acidity to kind of counter some of the some of the bitterness of the cucumbers. And using the the hot vinegar, I feel like helps things stay a little bit crisper. It's almost like blanching the vegetables. It gives them a, just a just a little bit of uh, structure on the on the cell wall. It like firms them up just a bit. It's pretty common in a lot of quick pickles to heat up the vinegar. There we go, boil, pour it over, and pretty much done here. <laughs> it's about as easy as it gets. Pretty simple, pretty delicious. Mmm, oh yeah. Oh, the turnip, oh I got a little chunk of mint with that turnip. Oh, that's super good. That's terrific. So, I'm gonna let this cool down, let all the flavors sort of blend together, and uh, this will go nice on my charcuterie board, alongside my chicken liver pate. Check the Pantry is a production of KBBI AM 890 in Homer, Alaska. It's produced and hosted by Jeff Lockwood. The theme music is String Quartet Opus 10, Movement 2 by Claude Debussy, performed by Quatuor Ebain. This is the seventh episode of the summer 2021 season of Check the Pantry. Support for this season of Check the Pantry comes from Bay Realty. Bay Realty has been listing and selling homes, lots, acreage, multifamily, commercial properties, and property management in the southern Kenai Peninsula since 1974. Learn more and view current listings at bayrealtyalaska.com or by calling 235-6183. Additional support for Check the Pantry comes from the Grog Shop Wine Club which each month provides members with two or three bottles of unique wines that are currently unavailable in the Homer market. These wines are curated by Patrick Driscoll, who has worked at Michelin Star restaurants in New York and is the only Level 3 sommelier in Alaska. More information at 235-5101. Your financial donation as a listener makes this and other KBBI programs possible. Visit the KBBI public radio website at kbbi.org slash support to help produce programs like this.